0: Let's bring in Hollywood divorce attorney David Glass for more on this. David, people going through divorces are going through some of the hardest times of their lives, and a lot of what they're going through is emotional. And in any divorce, there's a huge sense of loss, and loss of relationship, of money, some friends. David Glass here for another new episode of The Hourglass, where family law and psychology intersect. I'm a certified family law specialist, former psychologist, and the author of Moving On, Redesigning Your Emotional, Financial, and Social Life After Divorce. Today marks the close of our eight-week series about divorce and the holidays. I certainly hope you've been watching. Today, we're going to discuss when and how to restart your sex life. We're also going to look at what constitutes a habit, how to get rid of the bad ones, and develop positive new ones. We're going to consider starting off the new year by getting in shape. Next up is Dr. Beth Liedem. She's a clinical psychologist who specializes in relationship and sex therapy. She has served on the board of directors for the LA County Psychological Association and teaches grad students. She is also a member of the California and American Psychological Associations and a member of the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists. Dr. Leedham, the subject of sex is a delicate one. Um, when you're counseling a person who has recently gone through a breakup, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you know, it, 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 it can be delicate, but it doesn't have to be. People are really uncomfortable talking about sex because we really don't get trained to. Right. But, um, you know, part of my job is to get people to open up and talk about things and so we can can confront whatever problems have developed.
0: Sure. So what are some of the do's and don'ts about having sex after a breakup?
1: Sure. So... Um, Sexual problems are really common, even among happy couples. They're exceptionally common among couples who eventually break up. In fact, the most common thing that sex therapists see in consultation, the most common problem, is desire discrepancies. Right. So one partner has a lot of desire, um, and the other person doesn't have very much desire, which can cause a lot of pain on both sides. Actually, sure. Both for the person who is the high desire partner, because that person has experienced perhaps years of frustration and and pain and rejection, and um, you know hasn't been able to express themselves in an important area that is foundational to quality of life for them. Right. Um, It's also painful for the person on the other side of the equation. That person has often experienced a lot of frustration and may have come to feel... um, blamed or defensive or um, has been listening to a lot of their partner talking about how um, their disappointment, right? Right. Um, So it's painful for both people. So I guess my, my overarching message is if you're recovering from sexual difficulty in the relationship that you've just left, you're not alone. You're in really good company. Right. So I have sort of three general areas of do's and don'ts as you're thinking about moving into your future as a sexual person after a big breakup. Um, the first is to really assess how important sex is to you. And it sounds easy, but it really isn't. If you've been in a, in a relationship that's had some trouble uh, around sex, mm-hmm. um, often uh, often we're defensive and, and we can be confused about really how important is this for me now that I don't have to... Um, uh shape myself around a partner another partner you know Mm -hmm. the partner that i was with and so the first step is really assessing all right how important is this to me and what do i really want out of my sex life
0: yeah
1: um you know, be honest. being honest with yourself about what you want and need is um, something that, you know, often people didn't get to do in their prior relationship. And now yeah. in a new relationship or a new sexual connection, it's an opportunity to do things differently. Sure. And so to learn from the prior mistakes and to go forward doing things differently. And so this is a huge opportunity. So I would say um, the don't there is to not downplay the importance of sexual compatibility. Mm-hmm. A lot of people pick life partners for other reasons. Mm -hmm. I think that person would be a good parent, that person has values that are really compatible with mine, and those are good reasons, but often what they do is to downplay any sexual difficulties they may have, thinking Mm -hmm. that's really not as important as the other stuff. And sexual problems tend to grow more important over time, not less important. So being able to move forward, being honest and... um, you know, and and being clear about the importance of sexual compatibility for you, or maybe it isn't that important. That's really that's really key. So there's a second set of do and don'ts, which has to do with uh, uh, what sex is supposed to be like. Sex is supposed to be fun. Right. It's supposed to be joyful. Um, it can be healing. It can be groovy and tantric if that's what you want. Um, but you know, it, it isn't supposed to be dreary drudgery. Um, and so it, it's important to think. All right, well. What do I need to do in order to maximize my chances for the kind of sexual connection that I want? Maybe that means updating your skills. Right. Right. So, so if somebody went into a relationship 20 or 30 years ago, and there were certain things that were off the table in that relationship, maybe they never got good at them. But right. now's a chance to like do some learning. And sure. there are a lot of resources out there available to help people update their skills. But also, it's important to update our attitudes as well and our expectations. Um, You know, over the course of a long relationship, people age, and the kind of um, sexual relationship that might have felt right for them early in life may not fit anymore. Um, So we can adjust our expectations based on what is really possible for us now. So for example, if somebody, say say a man was um, partnered very early in his life, um, and had a lot of testosterone early in life and is now divorced after 30 years. Well, testosterone gradually um, declines over over right. over time. That's a normal part of aging. And so if he's expecting himself to be performing at the same level that he mm-hmm. could perform, perform, I don't even like the word perform, yeah. but to perform sexually at the level he was when he was in his early 20s, it's a really unreasonable expectation. I right. um, you know we can also update um, our, our standards around... Um, or ideas around um, monogamy, for example. You know, um, twenty or thirty years ago, not many people were talking about non-monogamous relationships, but right. that's really a possibility now that has a place in the culture. And so we have an opportunity to renegotiate that issue for ourselves if we really want to. Yeah. Um, and we also need to, um, you know, update our ideas about um, what our bodies are capable of doing. For example. Many people, particularly women, as they age, you know, a decline in estrogen is normal, obviously, and especially right. with menopause. So many women later in life experience sexual pain. Mm-hmm. Um, sex, sex should never be painful, um, but the tissues of the of the vagina and the, and the pelvic area can get thin, and we get old lady skin here, and we get old lady skin other right. places, too. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's never supposed to be painful, and somebody who's experiencing that should get some help from a sex therapist or from a doctor. Um, yeah. So the uh, the third thing I would say, I, I just want to g- give, give space for, is that many people coming out of a, a, a relationship, particularly a long-term t- relationship, may have concerns about their own attractiveness, You know, especially if it's been a sexually troubled relationship. Right. Characterized by rejection, one can often feel like, oh, well, am I still desirable? Will anybody still want me? And that's really normal and common, and there can be a lot of anxiety around that. Um, and my, my response to that is twofold. We should do things for ourselves, take care of ourselves in such a way that we feel attractive to ourselves.
0: Yeah. And so
1: if there are things that need updating, for example, our relationship to exercise or our eating habits, this is an opportunity to take care of that stuff, right? Sure. But we really need to be attracted to ourselves, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be oppressed or overwhelmed by unreasonable societal expectations about what that means, mm-hmm. right? I like to say, past a certain age, really most of us just want a partner who's naked and smiling. Right. (laughs) It's about the attitude, right? Right. Um, And so not holding ourselves to unreasonable expectations, particularly the expectations that may have built around porn use. You know, a lot of people use porn now. And it's important to remember that people in porn are professional performers. Right. And they're often athletes. And they are acting. (laughs) Right. So it's entertainment, really. And we can't expect ourselves or our partners to perform at that level.
0: Dr. Leedham, what does a healthy sex life look like after a breakup?
1: Sure. So let me start by talking about what a healthy sex life isn't. Right. Okay. So a healthy sex life um, isn't dependent on frequency. So often I get the question about healthy sex life, but really the person is asking me how much should I be having sex or, or what's normal. Right. And one person's normal may not be another person's normal. I know people who are middle-aged and are having sex every day and i know people who are not having sex at all right and that's normal for them right Right? and that's comfortable and healthy for them so it really doesn't have to do with frequency um it also uh, people often define sex as a body part being inserted into another body part (laughs) and for heterosexual couples often they define sex as penis and vagina Right. Um, ph penis and vagina intercourse, right. But that's a really narrow definition of sex. I don't like that definition, because it's really restrictive. Right. And the problem is that with aging, sometimes we can't have that, because mm-hmm. you know, some of our parts may be, may be in hibernation temporarily, or right. having a bad day. Right. So I like to define sex, healthy sex, as, as widely as possible. If you are having essential experience with your partner, where there's erotic energy, that counts as sex. It doesn't have to be limited to a specific set of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really healthy and useful to think flexibly. Um, and I've already said something about porn star sex. You know, Healthy sex doesn't have to be porn star sex. Um, so what is healthy sex? Mm-hmm. Healthy sex is one where there's ongoing enthusiastic consent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. We all have to be attuned to that. Yeah. Um, and what might be consensual on one day might not be consensual on another day, depending on how a person is feeling. So it's important to have healthy communication, and that's sure. really foundational. And like I said before, people are often really uncomfortable and shy talking about, talking about sex and getting into a conversation uh, with a partner about sex and what they like and don't like and what their expectations are. Um, but there is a great uh, uh, exercise that I can suggest to people. If you mm-hmm. just Google yes, no, maybe list sex, up will come a bunch of examples of this kind of list. It's a list of sexual behaviors, and the people can go through and list, yes, I've done that before and I like it. No, I definitely don't have any interest in ever doing that. Or right. maybe, I haven't tried it, but I'm open-minded. Yeah. It can lead to a lot of great conversations, and it's a really fun conversation to have maybe over a glass of wine sure, <laughs> or on sure. a walk or something. The, uh, and the other thing, obviously, is healthy sex is kind, right? Kind and respectful. Um, and one in which we make our expectations and our limitations clear to our partners so that everybody knows what's going on and and, uh, and we don't have room for misunderstandings or hurt feelings. Right.
0: right. And um, when people are getting divorced, I tell them not to start dating for a year, that they need to take yeah. off a year, among other things, to fix themselves, uh, but just to take a break. Is there any sort of rule of thumb that you give out for when you should resume sexual uh, relations with anyone post-divorce?
1: Yeah. That's a great question. For me, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. And people really vary in what they're ready for. In somebody who's a high-desire des- high person who's been in a, in a sexually frustrating relationship, where they feel like they've been in sex jail for years, yeah. they really want a jailbreak, right? <laughs> understandably. Right. And none of us is getting any younger. Life is short, and it's important for mm-hmm. us to get our needs met. So to me... Um, I think that's really understandable, so long as they are protecting themselves against sexually transmitted infections Mm -hmm. and taking care of their partners and and, um, being aware of consent and communication. For other people, they really need to go slowly, and I think they should really honor that process. Um, Some people need to really get into it very slowly. There may be time for grieving. Um, They may Mm -hmm. have issues that they need to work through. They may have their own sexual issues or... Or you know, or other psychological stuff that they need help with, yeah. and that takes time. So I, again, I think knowing yourself and being able to mm-hmm. recognize what it is that you need and honoring that is really important here.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, I will say one thing, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is that oftentimes people who are in a jailbra- jailbreak jailbreak uh, frame yeah. of mind, um, they're they're prone to infatuation. Right? We all know what that feels like, yeah. and they will often dive into. Uh, introducing their new sex partner to everyone in their family. Right. And that I would say be particularly careful around your kids. Right. You know, make sure that this is somebody who's going to stick around before you, you involve them with your children. Right? And so that's a good yeah. reason to, to take it a little slow and mindfully.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah really good advice. Uh, are there lasting negative effects if a person ventures into new sex too soon after a breakup? Uh, and what would that look like?
1: I guess if they're venturing too soon, it means that they weren't ready. Mm-hmm. And that probably means that there was stuff that they weren't aware of that was important to them that they weren't in a position to take care of. So, um, you know, not being ready can mean you haven't sorted out what's important to you or you're not ready to tolerate the inevitable vulnerability that we experience in sexual situations or they may not be ready to negotiate and communicate clearly about sex and about their sexual expectations, and they may not be ready to dive into intimacy Mm -hmm. at the rate that maybe the other person is. Um, In terms of lasting effects, well... I mean, we really don't want people to get traumatized, so mm. we don't want them to dive into stuff that may be too scary for them. Um, and especially if somebody's in jailbreak mode, you wanna you wanna um, just make sure that you're you're not getting yourself into stuff that you may later regret.
0: Um. Yeah, it makes sense that that you would. I, I think I just think people would want to figure out what went wrong, right, in the last relationship before you jump into a new relationship and either repeat your own patterns or pick a person who is too much like the last person you were with.
1: Absolutely. And you know, part of the problem, you know, some people during a breakup, it becomes really easy to see the other person as really the major problem and sure. to downplay our own responsibility in the dynamics that led to a breakup. It happens all the time. It happens mm-hmm. to the best of us. Right. But really, it is important to take stock of what was your contribution to the dynamics that led to the breakup? What can you take responsibility for? Because that's an opportunity for growth. and. It's very valuable learning.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, as
1: painful as a breakup is, there's very valuable learning to be, to be had there if you're yeah. willing to take advantage of it mm-hmm. so that you can move into the kind of connection that you really want and that can last for you.
0: Right. Now, is pursuing lots of sex a good way to get over a breakup?
1: Well, it can be really fun in the short term, but if you really want to get over a breakup, it seems to me to be hopscotching over um, the grief and the learning that you can do that will really help you recover.
0: Yeah. Now, what about the situation where having sex after your breakup reminds you of your ex? What can someone do about that?
1: I guess there could be two things going on there. Um, If the person is reminding you of your ex, maybe there are some things about them that you should be aware of. Maybe those are red flags. Right. Um, Or maybe you're projecting some trauma from your old relationship onto the new relationship, and you need to really take stock of, of what it is that you're bringing into it.
0: Yeah, wow. Really insightful. What are some of the most common mistakes divorcees make when it comes to resuming their sex life?
1: Well, one big common mistake is to forget about protection against sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. And another common mistake is to do it the way you always did it with your ex. Right. Not thinking about how this is a new person and we have to learn new people.
0: Yeah, yeah. What about the situation where you had a great sex life with your ex, and you broke up for some other reason? Is it ever a good idea to continue that sexual relationship with your ex-spouse?
1: I understand it can be tempting, but if the goal is moving on, David, right. that's probably not going in the right direction. Right.
0: Definitely not moving on. It's staying right, right exactly where you were. What should you do if you have zero interest in sex, especially if it's been a long period of time since the breakup?
1: Sure. So it depends on whether you want to have interest in sex. If you have zero interest in sex and that's fine with you, then that's where you are. Right. If you want to address why you have less interest in sex than you might like, um, One place to look is your medical provider, you know, to bring that up with Mm -hmm. your physician. Physicians aren't really well trained in dealing with sexual problems. Unfortunately, they just don't get that training. So you can also consult a sex therapist. There can be lots of reasons why somebody is not interested in sex. Some of them are medical, underlying medical conditions. Sometimes it's medication related. Sometimes it's psychological. Um, Sometimes it's historical because there's been a history of bad sex. And people who have had a lot of bad sex don't want to have sex. Sure, (laughs) sure. So I, I would say get help.
0: Yeah, and ask, ask the questions. Yeah. Uh, with the new year just hours away, what are some reasonable goals to list if you want to kickstart your sex life?
1: Well, I would say um, in the new year, consider the fact that you're entitled to pleasure. We are entitled to pleasure if we want it, and we are also entitled to be the sexual being that is right for us. Mm-hmm. So going into the new year, I would suggest that people think about not pretzeling themselves into a shape that doesn't really fit them, But thinking about what really is the most authentic form of sexual expression for them and seek it out.
0: So if a person goes to sex therapy after a breakup, what should they expect? If they haven't been to a therapist before, what should they expect in meeting uh, this therapist?
1: Sure. So sex therapists are certified. You would want to look for somebody who's a certified sex therapist who has specialized training in it and we tend to keep people in therapy um, for as long as it takes to address the problem that they're seeking help with. We don't keep people in therapy endlessly. The goal of sex therapy is actually to help you fix your problem and get you out of sex therapy. Right. So there's an initial consultation or two where we're really assessing the problems um, and assessing what the goals for treatment are, and then um, we proceed with homework. Um, sex therapy never involves any kind of sexual behavior in the session or any right. kinds of touching with the therapist, but we do give a lot of homework, And homework is basically, I frame it as an experiment. Go off and run this experiment, come back with the data, and we'll learn from the data, and we'll Mm -hmm. formulate a new experiment to help you grow or to help you overcome any problems that are getting getting in the way of a, a good experience.
0: Yeah. Now, what role does communication play when you're engaging with a new partner?
1: Well, you know, my view is that communication is everything. It's really foundational. And even when it's uncomfortable, practice. It gets easier with practice. Right. I'll sometimes suggest to people who are really uncomfortable using, using sexual language or talking about sex to write a script and to practice it all by themselves in the bathroom. <laughs> right. Just so they can desensitize themselves and get used sure, to it. Sure. But it's really difficult to get our needs met if we can't talk about our needs And it's really difficult to make sure that we're on the same page with a partner if we can't talk about it.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing some solid suggestions for our audience today. Uh, Sex is not something that is easy to discuss for many. Uh, So just listening to you was, I'm sure, very helpful to those who are reluctant to even talk about it. Um, All the topics you covered were important and hard ones for many of our viewers to articulate. How do people find you if they want to consult with you about whatever their sex issues might be?
1: Sure. So um, a great place to look for a sex therapist any place in the country is at the website for the uh, American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. That's the main certifying body in the United States for sex therapists, Mm -hmm. and they have a search function where you can look by state. So, for example, somebody in California, a person in California seeking services, can see anybody who's licensed in California, and it's organized by state. I'm in there, so you can find me
0: there. Okay, and specifically, if they're looking for you, how do they find you on the web?
1: Oh, sure, so my, web, web, my address is www.drbethleadem.com.
0: Great, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. In our next segment, we have USC Provost Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Business, Wendy Wood. So how long exactly does it take to form a habit if you are trying to create new habits? Is there an average length of time? Is there a certain number of repetitions that you have to do?
2: It'd be nice if there was. <laughs> <laughs> you could say, okay, I'm finally done. I formed that habit I don't have to struggle anymore. Right. If you think of habits as a learning system, though, it makes sense that there wouldn't be a number, right? Mm -hmm. Because some things are just harder to learn than others. And so if you have complex activities, like going to the gym is pretty complicated when you think about all the things you have to organize in order to get there. That's a complex habit to form. And there are some people who think it never actually completely becomes a habit. So some parts of it might. You know, you get your workout clothes together, you put them in a bag, you put them by the door, and then that reminds you, oh yeah, I was going to go to the gym, and then you just Mm -hmm. get in the car and you head there without thinking a whole lot about it. But there are probably parts of it that are also more thoughtful. So for complex behaviors, they may never completely become habitual, Mm -hmm. and it will take longer for them to become habits than something simple like most of us we make coffee in the morning out of habit and we tend to do the same things every day because we figured out something that's good enough or something that tastes good to us and we just do it over and over and that might only take a month of repetition Um, but it really depends on how complex the behavior is how many times you have to repeat it in order for those habit memory
0: associations to form. Okay. now, why is it that uh, certain weight loss programs, commercial programs, um, without naming names, how come they don't always work for people in changing their habits around eating uh, and and potentially losing weight?
2: Well, as I said, most of us don't understand how to change habit memories, and we go in it with great motivation and goals, thinking that we're gonna change our behavior, we're gonna lose weight. And we do so effortfully, trying hard, really controlling our behavior. But then, as I said, over time, that just gets, it gets tedious and effortful and no fun. You're not only not able to eat the things that you're used to and come Mm. to like, You have to start figuring out other foods to eat that you don't like so much, you have to control. And most weight control efforts are like that. We're not focusing on ways to control our habits. Instead, we're going to the easy solution, which is let me just control my behavior and ultimately I'm sure I'll win, which, is for most of us, I'm afraid, wishful thinking. Right. Um, a better approach mm-hmm. that does seem to control um, behavior and help people lose weight is to control the environment, control the cues around you so that they're not activating. Lots of eating constantly. I mean, we've all stood in front of the refrigerator and just automatically opened it and looked inside to see what was there, even if we weren't hungry. That's what happens when you have a habit is you just do the behavior. Chips on the counter, you're going to put your hand in the bag whether you're hungry or not. Mm -hmm. So controlling controlling the context would be... Moving the bag of chips off of the counter, not having food around. Um, it would be maybe not having it in the house right. if you don't want to eat it. Um, one of my tricks is i I like sweet things. So whenever I end up buying something that's sweet, I freeze it. And then you just have to wait a while to eat it for it to defrost. And that, for me, works. But everybody will find tricks if they focus on controlling the environment, not so much controlling themselves. It doesn't stop you from eating these foods, right? Right. But you don't have to stop eating them. You just want to eat a little bit less in order to lose weight. And so figuring out ways to change the environment and make it a little bit harder to eat the way you normally do is, in, in current research, seems
0: to be the key. Sure. Now, slightly different, what's, is there any sort of magic uh, in ridding yourself of an addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or gambling? Um, How do habits play in in that?
2: Well, I don't study addictions, Um, I study habits. Addictions are related to habits because they involve habits but they involve other things as well. We typically think of addictions as involving some some substance that um, alters, your mental or physical state. Hmm. Um, And habits are much broader than that. So habit memories are involved in addiction, but addiction is more than just a habit. And I think sometimes um, people use the term addiction when really they mean a strong habit. Sure, We think of like video game addiction or addiction to your cell phones. Um, you know, if I took your cell phone away, you'd probably think about it a few times. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you'd suffer withdrawal, right? the same way that an alcoholic would suffer withdrawal mm-hmm. if they stopped drinking. So there are habits are a slightly different system. Our cell phones form strong habits um, and video games can form strong habits, too. But it's not necessarily an
0: addiction. All right, anything else that I've, uh, that I've missed that our viewers would uh, appreciate hearing about and how habits can help them in their lives?
2: Well, we used to think that some people had a lot of self-control. Um, some of this came from those old marshmallow studies. Do you remember um, Walter Mischel <laughs> yeah. gave four-year-olds a marshmallow? And if they could sit there and not eat it
3: right.
2: 10 or 15 minutes, then they got two marshmallows. Right.
3: Right. And
2: only some kids could do that. Mm-hmm. And the kids who could do it ended up growing up getting higher SAT scores, right. Um, getting better grades, even weighing
3: less
2: (laughs) than Mm -hmm. kids who gave into that temptation. So we started to think that some people, boy, they just have really strong self-control and willpower, and they're just meant for success. And the rest of us, well, (laughs) too (laughs) bad, because it's something that you either have when you're four or you're not going to have it. Um, but if you look at that research a little bit more closely, you come away with really different impressions. One of the conditions in that study, that original study with the four-year-olds and the marshmallow, um, what they did is they took the marshmallow and put it aside and put a pie tin on it right. and told the kids, You can eat this anytime you want to, but we're just going to put a tin over it um, and lift it up if you want to. But if you can wait those 10 or 15 minutes, then you'll get two marshmallows. Right. Almost all the kids could do it then. Right. They could all wait. They all exerted self-control, which is what we've learned about self-control. It's so much more about the environment that you're in right? It kind of relates back to the conversation we were having about dieting and eating. Yeah, If you control the environment so that you're not cued and tempted constantly, most of us can then act like someone who has high self-control. So controlling the environment really seems to be key to success in many domains in our lives and the trick then is what helps you control your environment to meet your goals and that's a different question then right. um how do you exert self-control
3: mm-hmm.
2: instead how do you put things in place so that your environment works for you and that seems to be the um the key Mm-hmm. to people who have high self-control.
0: Great. A great way to wrap things up, Dr. Wood. Uh, where do people find you if they want to find more about your book or about uh, the research or the work you do? Um,
2: I'm on LinkedIn. I Also, all you have to do is type in Wendy Wood on Google, and um, you'll get my, a, a, con- a connection to my email
0: mm-hmm.
2: at University of Southern California. And I'd love to talk to people further about this and their own challenges.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. That was very enlightening. I hope it satisfied some of your curiosities. And now, continuing on with our conversations about how to reinvent yourself as the new year kicks off, we have Tracy Jones from Ultimate Performance Personal Training Gym in LA in West Hollywood. Her company has 30 locations around the globe, Tracy is a specialist in helping clients not only get into shape, but she also manages a staff of trainers that help clients maintain that lifestyle. Tracy has been in the fitness industry most of her life as a group instructor, personal trainer, coach, and even PE teacher. She has certifications in nutrition, strength training, speed agility, and other impressive credentials and skills. Now, welcome, Tracy. I see in your information that your gym uses a body composition program fitted to each client's lifestyles, their goals, their abilities, Uh, and you talk about success uh, in a client's program as it relates to metrics and health markers. Can you please explain that to our viewers?
4: Um, Sure. Uh, When our clients come to us, they, generally speaking, have a broad goal. I want to look better. I want to feel better. I want to get healthier, but they don't have a very defined, specific, measurable goal. So we help them get to what that goal might be, because at the end of their transformation or their end of their time with us, we need to measurably be able to see where they came from and where they're at right now and see what the accomplishments are that they have done. So the metrics are usually weight, body fat, uh, actual measurements, as well as strengths, and then, of course, how they look.
0: Great. And so if I'm a new client, what can I expect uh, from my ultimate performance personal trainer when I sign up for a program at your facility?
4: You can expect an a all-encompassing, full-spectrum Involvement out of our personal trainers, out of ours, very specifically. Most personal trainers, when you go to them, they are going to help help you work out. They're going to help you with your nutrition a little bit, and they're just going to make sure that you work out well. We are a little bit more accountable. We're a lot more. results driven than most personal trainers. So you will meet them. Of course, we are going to give you a full body assessment. We're going to do body caliper measurements. We're going to to find out your body composition, measure you, really measure out what your goals are. Uh, we have our own app and, and uh, that way you can track your calories, your nutrition. We're going to give you the guidance on exactly what you're going to be eating, how you're going to eat it and when to eat it. We're going to tell you exactly how many steps we want you to take. Uh, all of this is outside of the gym. When you're with, them, with the trainer themselves, uh, you will be actually training on a very specific, measurable, science-driven uh, template that, that our founder created.
0: Great. Right. And how often uh, would I meet with the personal trainer? Three
4: times a week for an hour each time.
0: Wow. Yeah. So that, that gets you right off in the right direction, I Absolutely. Suppose.
4: Absolutely. The first couple of weeks are probably going to be a little bit more challenging because that's where the habits are, are, are um, created. That's where we're really trying to get you to, to realize that this is your new lifestyle. After that, it, it becomes very habit-driven and it's part of your
0: schedule. Right. Now, what happens after that startup program is over?
4: Mm -hmm. You continue. (laughs)
0: Right.
4: You have to continue. You know, you have to maintain it. And that's, you know, any personal training program, ours especially, is very much built on educating you on how to maintain that lifestyle. Because uh, the hard part for anybody in any kind of exercise, especially at the beginning of the year, is very much how do I get started. And anybody can teach you how to get started. It's the making you maintain that. That's That's where the challenge is.
0: And so what does the maintenance program look like? How does it differ from the startup program? It doesn't.
4: Oh. <laughs> it's the same. It's it's a continuing education, if you want to look at it that way. It's, it's you know, how do you maintain it? How do you continue this lifestyle? How do you make sure that you don't fall off the wagon or you continue to keep this scheduled? And how do I continue to eat right? How do I not, you know, go crazy on the weekends? So.
0: Now, this question I have is because I went through a bad experience with a personal trainer. Um, uh but does the personal trainer set the expectations uh, or do I? My experience was I went to a personal trainer. He, he worked me to death uh, to where I, you know, after every session, I either felt like I was going to throw up or I actually threw up. Uh, I'd go home. I couldn't do anything afterwards. And I don't think it was part of the startup getting used to a new situation. So taking us back to the question, how, do you, how does a personal trainer and the client figure that out?
4: At the beginning of your first initial consultation is is ninety minutes long. That's where you're really setting up all your expectations. That's where your you, the client is telling the trainer what their goals are, what they what they're expecting, what they want to get out of that. Uh, then the trainer also is going to share their their hopes because a lot of people they don't think they can go as far as they can go. So right. if they if they you know whether it's a weight loss goal or a strength gain goal, regardless what their goal is, people don't really believe that they can do as much as they're capable of doing. So sometimes the trainers, yes, do over push you. That was probably not a good example of personal right. training. Um, in the beginning, it is challenging, like you said, but it shouldn't be challenging like that. The trainer should be gauging your reactions and gauging your abilities every moment during the training session, you know, and then we do have people that don't feel good and do get sick. And that is a part of it because your lactic acid builds up in your stomach and it actually makes you not feel good, but you get used to that. You should get used to that unless somebody is inappropriately training
0: you. Now, what kind of questions should I ask my potential uh, personal trainer before I actually sign up?
4: Hopefully you will get a really good background on the trainer before you even are with them. Right. You'll get a good idea of what their history is, what their modality is, because there's a lot of different types of training. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different types of trainers. The best trainer is going to be a chameleon for you and be whatever you need them to be. So right. honestly, the questions that you ask them shouldn't be personality-driven. It should be very much, you know, what are what is their background? What is their experience? What are their success stories? Um, do they have an example of a, of a client that they could speak to uh, yeah. as a referral sort of, of background, do some research, find out you know, of what, al- what else is out there
0: on Google. And so how do I know whether a personal trainer is right for me? Is, is, is there any sort of checklist I should be looking at?
4: That's hard. I, I would guess that's, that's kind of hard to answer because you're not going to know if they're not right for you until you're throwing up and you're done with the <laughs> program and you don't like it, you know. Um, if they're right for you, it's you're, you feel successful, you're achieving your goals, you uh, enjoy your time with the trainer. Um, most trainers like very much to become your friend. That's not a that's not a good thing because right. it's still a prof, it's a professional transaction. You're mm-hmm. coming to the trainer for a service. They need to deliver a service to you, and that needs to be your results, your focus, what you what you're what you're looking to get out of it. Yeah. Um, and if they're not doing that, then they're obviously not a good fit. So in the beginning, I would say, generally speaking, it's going to be. Are, do, are, do you feel good about the program? Are you feeling stronger? Are you sleeping better? Are you, know, are you talking about professionally your, your nutrition, your sleeping, your steps, you know, if you're, you know, on a professional basis? And then like with, you know, a good doctor or a good lawyer, you're going to know off the bat if you've, if you've got a good rapport with them.
0: Looking specifically at if someone's depressed, why is working out or getting exercise uh, an important part of rising themselves out Of that depression
4: it's the number one most important thing for them to do to get out of the depression because of the endorphins i mean that's the the only natural antidepressant that that you're going to get um that's single-handedly the most important thing that they they can do and should do um probably also the hardest thing for them to do right you know because depression i'm sure is very you know paralyzing you don't want to go out you don't want to do anything and it's the number one thing that you should do you know, even if it's just beginning with just stepping, just go take a walk around your block. Take, yeah. If you can't get out of the house, walk around your, your, your space, your house, your apartment, whatever that is. Get moving. That's the most important thing that you can do. And it's simply because of the endorphins. And then that is, is cyclical. That energy is going to, you know, create more energy. And that's going to, you know, start the cycle of getting you out of that depression.
0: Right. So, uh, and you mentioned sleep. Um, how important is sleep in the overall process?
4: Fundamentally one of the most important aspects of it. Um, they say that you lift weights in the gym, but you build your muscles while you're sleeping. Mm. And that's super-duper important. You need that recovery time. And that's for your muscles. You know, that's not speaking on, you know, brain recovery and, and other right. types of recovery. But you, we, we speak on at work, we speak on, on sleep heavily
0: because it's, it's paramount. And in working with uh, your clients in terms of their nutrition, uh, how does that work? Is it giving them a meal plan, or is it talking about calories, or all of the above?
4: All of the above. Um, everybody, most people come with us with some form of a body composition goal, which means weight loss, which means body build, you know, body fat loss, whatever that is. But so generally speaking, our clients are looking for a calorie deficit, and so we we it, Based in our metrics, based in the math that we do, we see where they're at. They say, I want to do this in 12 weeks, and so we break it down to what they have to achieve daily in order to get there. That's one of our biggest metrics in making sure that you get there because we don't – we won't set, like – intangible goals it's got to be very specific goals and what you have to do daily so within that daily uh goal framework is calories and we talk about how many calories you specifically get and of those calories how many of those are your macros your fats your proteins and your carbs so we we tell you exactly what to to eat you know Mm -hmm. it it, then also if the client says, no, I've got somebody that's cooking for me or I've got a meal delivery, that's a little bit easier conversation because nobody really has to think about it. We just, you know, know exactly what you've got going on. But a lot of people want to cook themselves. So we talk about measuring and, and making sure yeah. that things get weighed and yeah. it's very, very specific. The nutrition aspect of any sort of a of a healthy routine is 80% of the, su- the success. Wow. Yeah.
0: Great. Thanks, Tracy, so much for hopefully motivating our listeners to get off the couch or get away from the computer and to get in shape the right way.
4: Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's it's hard for, especially at the beginning of the year, everybody wants to go start into yeah. some sort of a, a health uh, routine at the beginning of the year, and we, of course, always encourage it, but it's the... It's the getting started. Like I said, that's the easy part. It's the maintaining it. That's the hard part. So you just have to find what you love. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's playing basketball. It doesn't matter if it's playing tennis or walking on the beach. You need to do what you love and what you can maintain and continue doing to get you off the couch.
0: Great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. We're closing today with another timeout segment, the moment we take a lighthearted look at relationship and breakup issues. You were so taken with the original humorous songs of singer-songwriter Tracy Newman, we invited her to sing something else for us. Today, she's going to take us back to one of her long-ago relationships that more or less bottomed out.
3: (laughs) Wasn't that long ago, by the way. (laughs) 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 I embarrassed to say this relationship works because we never talk. Except for make me some eggs, bacon and toast, and aren't you gonna wear socks? To be honest and true, what I like about you is that you're always high. You don't care if we never get out of the house And neither do I This must be the way we want it This must be what we need I'll make the martinis And you fire up the weed I have so much guilt attached to how we began And that's what silences me You were with someone else I snatched you up for myself Like the last piece of meat Not that you didn't Jump at the chance Old dog that you are but I opened the door, patted the seat, and said, Get in the car. This must be the way we want it. This must be what we need. I'll make the martinis and you fire up the weed I think that talking things through is overrated I'd rather be blue and medicated it took a few years and buckets of tears for me to understand why your ex never once even complained when I took her man. She was patiently waiting for a sucker like me to come onto the scene. I did her a favor and she'll be forever grateful to me. This must be the way we want it This must be what we need I'll make the martinis And you fire up the weed We'll keep each other out of circulation Doing mankind a very good deed. Thanks. Thank you.
0: (laughs) I guess the message there is that relationships can be unhealthy and stagnant, and many people remain in unhealthy ruts, wasting time. Don't they?
3: Yeah, they do. I did. I definitely did. If you want any song about relationships being bad, breaking up, anything related to relationships, I've got the songs.
0: (laughs) All right. We'll keep you on tap. This is the uh, last episode of our uh, 12-episode season. Mm -hmm. We'll be starting up again in the new year, and we'll definitely have you back.
3: Oh, that'll be great. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Speaking of Tracy's song, here's my choice for today's set of lyrics to consider. Another song selection that refers to time and the importance of it. I've chosen an oldie, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. The overall meaning of the lyric seems to infer that the person is just lazily sitting on a dock, watching the boats go by. Some say that the true interpretation of the song is that the individual is simply remaining passive about everything, just observing, allowing life to pass him by. It finishes with, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Don't be like the person in the song. Don't waste time. Don't sit idly by watching things come and go. Get busy. Get involved. Kick off the new year with activities and goals that move you forward. It's a new year, so make good use of every one of your upcoming 525,600 minutes. Thanks for staying with us over the last 12 episodes. We'll be back after the new year with all new episodes. So stay tuned.